Welcome to Top Shelf at the Merrick Library with your host, Carol Antak. Welcome back, listeners. I am so thrilled to introduce a guest who has a book that floored me over the summer, and I mean floored me. Temperatures by today's guest, Suzanne Crane Miller, hit shelves earlier this year, and man, oh man, is it a chilling dark thriller. I won't say more than that, but Suzanne Crane Miller, thank you so much for joining me and the listeners of the Top Shelf at Merrick Library podcast. I am thrilled that you are here. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I am brand new to your work and I am so glad to be here with it. I wish I could remember where I first saw temperatures. It was on Twitter, I think referred to either by Heather Levy or Scott Blackburn, Mark Westmoreland, maybe. I don't recall, but as soon as I saw their shout out with a picture of that cover, that is all I needed. And speaking of award-winning author Heather Levy, she says of temperatures, Miller's grit-laced temperatures is a stark reminder that in the South, the past is never truly past when it comes to racism and retribution. Drenched in harsh small-town classism and racial divides, Miller's lush lyricism and deep-fried colloquialism paints an intriguing and heartbreaking rural mystery with twists until the last page. And boy, does she nail that perfectly because twist it does. And having read that stellar review, Suzanne Crane Miller, if you would, please tell us about temperatures. Well, first of all, definitely give a shout out to Heather. I love the last books I've read of hers, Walking Through Needles, Hurt For You's Coming Out. Everybody be sure and pre-order and get that both really intense and dark romance and also thriller as well. She has been such a great presence in my writing life and just personal life. I like her so much and she's so benevolent and has great advice. So I always appreciate her very much. We met on Twitter during COVID time. So during the pandemic, I always think about how each of my books is birthed and I don't always know until after I've written it. And I heard once that you write what you need to write. And that bothered me a little bit about temperatures because I thought, why did I need to write that? (laughs) It's very true, I think. I have lived in the Carolinas for most of my life, except for college in the Midwest. And I realized that I had lived mainly in suburban and sort of old school, like resort area, Pinehurst area. Then I lived in the city in Raleigh. And I had not lived in rural Carolinas until the pandemic forced me to have to, as being a disabled person with an autoimmune disease, I had to move during the pandemic, sell our home in the city. And we had to move where I could find a house with a carport to put a pool on so I could do my exercises or I was going to be back on crutches. That was very different. Big change for me having to be in a rural area. We learned very quickly. We were fish out of water for sure. Um, I have, as people, anyone who follows my stuff can see, I have shaved sides of my head and I have tattoos. It's kind of, you know, tattooed daughter. That's sort of my thing. That's taken on a whole different thing living here (laughs) (laughs) in the city. I was kind of a lightweight. My neighbor was a tech millionaire at one point. He had tattoos up his neck and all over him and that was nothing. But here, yeah, it's very different. So getting used to 
yeah, being in the rural South. And I think in the wake of 2020 and just not only the pandemic, which actually was not happening to some degree in the rural areas Mm -hmm. in their minds. So I had to get adjusted to that. But I think after George Floyd and everything that happened with Black Lives Matter, I was very disturbed and moved to write, I guess, to give a glimpse that that's not happening for everybody and that is not happening in every area. And there are strategic reasons why that's not happening. And I think being someone who's lived in the South, which is kind of rare to be almost 46 and have lived in the South most of your life, from from my generation anyway, I think I felt I owed it to sort of pull back the curtains on some of the South's taboos. And Joyce Carol Oates says the stories are found in the taboo topics. And so I'm always searching when I write anything, am I writing about something that's uncomfortable and going to disturb? And can I do it in a way to help people who usually wouldn't want to talk about that topic read it? And so that's kind of the impetus of what really drove it. And then secondarily, I've always been sort of enamored with the idea that is there something in us biologically that we have to get caught? We have a subconscious balancing of scales where we cannot stand and let it stand that we're not caught. It reminds me of that when you see, you know, different things on the news and you're thinking, now that person was going to get away with this, but they did this and they got caught. So I'm almost convinced there is something in us that cannot take it, Uh, innate justice in people that almost cannot stand it if justice is not carried out in some way. I'm floored by that. That is incredible background about this book. Tell listeners about the story if you had to give it an elevator pitch. Yeah, so it's two detectives or two cops who find themselves lumped together. A bit of a training day, but it's a training summer, if I had to put it. And I've always been a big True Detectives fan. Love Nick Pizzolatto. Love Galveston, his novel. To do a little sidebar there. Love that book. Um, So I always knew I would write something about detectives or police. Also worked a lot with homeless people and had a lot of dealings with the police when I lived in downtown Raleigh. So I always wanted to write something that involved policemen and met different types of policemen, for sure. Yet they can be serving in the same area, but very different types of people, very different reasons they serve. So I always wanted to do that. And then also wanted to make sure I wrote about, and I touch on this in the book, that some people are really trying to save other people from what's behind the door and other people are just beating doors down constantly and they, the adrenaline of it. So I wanted to touch on those things, sort of about the reasons that people would get into that job, what drives them, what haunts them. I very much probably write a lot about what haunts people and we're all haunted in some respect. Some people's ghosts just have chains that are really loud and others are very subtle and rock in the chair like the Norman Bates, you know. (laughs) So that to me culminated at the same time, around the same time I had to move to this rural area where policing is very different. And the idea of whether or not you would call the police is very different to your area. And also the fact that not far from us, 
we had a police officer who was moved, like one of the characters in the book, for doing something that was racially thought to be a crime in the area where he was from. And he was accepted in an area about 40 minutes from me to be on their force. And there was a big debate about that. I have kind of my own innate reasons for wanting to write something and then a universal theme I want to tie in. But then something that happened locally or in the news will also affect me and make me want to include that. Really, you know, these two cops being lumped in together, one of them dredges up something from the other partner's past. Who's going to survive the summer is kind of the major crux of it, ultimately. It's fantastic. I'm telling you, it's a page turner. And I love that each chapter has a unique and very clever heading. They are actual temperatures. Tell me what those temperatures mean, what they can note. When did you come up with that idea to give each chapter a temperature? Well, I I work in science communication, so I tend to read a lot of articles. And in the beginning of the book, I do quote an article where someone had done a study about how murder, there are more murders in warmer temperatures. And so I'm kind of taken with stories that the setting and the temperature and the season matter a lot. I'm a big film buff, and there was a great film with Samuel Jackson, and he was a cop in the film, but the fires were happening in L.A. It was really good, and it was also a racially tense drama, Lakeside Drive, I want to say it was called. But the setting and the fires in that and the temperature and everything accelerating at a rate were so part of the story. So I think that's true a lot in our lives. You wonder, was I really that upset about that or it was just hot as hell? (laughs) I was tired from being outside. Yeah, the name of the movie is Lakeview Terrace. Lakeview Terrace. Yes, yes. Lakeview Terrace. That's right. Yeah, that is, I highly recommend that. I don't know if it came from a book originally, but it is so well written. I knew then that I wanted to use that quote and then have the gradual bubble and boil. And I use the different temperatures really Hogue's chapter. Chapters that is, that's told in first person, they are the hot times and the temperatures are, you know, warmer and it's happening in present time. Then Mitchum or Cobb that's looking back, his are the cooler temperatures and he's looking back on it. And then the omniscient narrator that I like to do for the third sections, those were just kind of on their own a little bit, just a degree, depending on what was happening. So those could have been either. I had a great time following that and thinking, oh, okay, I know what Suzanne's doing here. So I, you know, I really enjoyed that piece of it. And then I have to ask the first chapter of the book, was that always going to be, there's multiple points of views in this book, listeners. Was that first chapter always going to be from Cyrus? Did you have a different voice that you wanted to start with, like maybe Kelly or Mitch? Like, was that the one you always wanted to go with first? Yes, first, because I wanted to create a situation and I often will do this in my books. I want to somewhat repulse and intrigue people simultaneously because you remember what repulses you for one. And so, yeah, he was always going to be first. And it actually started out his and then the Miss Olson, the mother chapter, those were both just short pieces. And I didn't know for sure it would be a novel. And I actually queried my editor at Winding Road Stories, Michael Dolan, with a different book. 
he read it, but it just wasn't his thing. And he said, but what else are you working on? And that's when I sort of decided for sure those would be a novel. So I sent him those, the first few chapters of Temperatures, and then he was very interested. But I thought, yeah, I thought Hogue should start off, and I wanted to put him in a setting right away that lets you know what kind of person he was Mm -hmm. and what he thought about things or didn't think. And that it was just the situation and you had to know, was he right? And what you had to know the answer. You don't like him, but you want to know what's going to happen. For sure. And I've been going a little nutty recently over some excellent first sentences that I have read in so many different books. But in Temperatures, you give us, we pull down the driveway and there it is a bright yellow sign in the yard that tells me we're up for one hell of an afternoon. And Carolyn was gone. Goodbye. See you later. (laughs) Um, Always going to be the first sentence or did you have something else that you were starting with? No, that was always going to be the first sentence. I think pretty sure. Um, I it's silly, but to some people, I guess it's going to sound very juvenile, but I find it holds true. When I used to teach third grade, I would teach something called empowering writers. And I would even teach other teachers about writing. And they have these things they called interesting beginnings. And I usually try to stick to one of those interesting beginnings. It, it's great to look that up. Empowering writers, interesting beginnings. They have several there. And I will often do several of those and then choose which one. So I was either going to write it with the dialogue of him talking about the thank you, Jesus. Right. But then I decided to go with leading description instead. Perfect. It's um, it's wonderful listening to all of that technical things that go on in the background. As I was just mentioning point of view of different characters, there are so many compelling people in this book, some of which are very bad. Some are worse. Some are in that gray area. But Mitchum Cobb, that Mitch Cobb, I find him, I don't know, I don't even have the word I'm looking for. And I knew I was going to be sitting down with you. And I still don't know the word that I'm looking for. Tell me about writing him, writing his voice, getting him on that page. Well, I think he's very conflicted and unresolved to an extent about his past. I really, you know, I'd love to say I have a lot of technical things, but I am one of those writers. I I don't mind saying as crazy as it can sound to some people. I'm more in listen than I write. Mm-hmm. I listen to who has stepped up and who's saying, I want to tell you a story. And Mitchum and Hogue, and that's also why that had to be my first sentence in the book. That is what Hogue said to me. And I thought that when I see, thank you, Jesus, bright yellow signs all the time. Where I live. Right. And Mitchum very much also just poured, I would put, I would more put him in a circumstance. So I'll set up a circumstance or I'll say, okay, what if we're here? And then I just listen to what they say they're going to do there and that they're thinking of there. So it wasn't hard to write him. It was harder to cut him out. I actually hand write my whole first draft of a book in Sharpie in notebooks because I work on the computer for my day job and I get so sick of the computer. (laughs) So it's just great for me to take a notebook and some Sharpies and go sit outside. And so, yeah, that's, I'd like to say there's some way that I did that, but I'm more, I always encourage people. The best thing I ever did was take an improv class in college. Those have helped me more with my writing than anything I ever did with writing. 
improv. And I also did some film study in LA and write and screenwriting and screenwriting classes really can help you with dialogue, I think. And then the improv really helps you get out of yourself and embody the character. And there are times I just take walks with my dog and will ask aloud so-and-so which character I'm working on. What do you need to tell me? And then I will try to remember it all before I get home, or I will try to say it into the notes app. And then I refine it later, of course, because not all of it's going to be relevant. But I just sort of always worked that way. Mitchum, in particular, he is something else, this character. Again, that character development is just like a just incredible for me. There's a sentence about Mitch. Mitch was a bystander his whole life. He'd been just that. What a story he has to tell. It's really something. And then, of course, we get Cyrus. He's digging deeper and deeper into solving this case of what happened to Brandon. And there's two mysteries here. What happens to Brandon and then what happens to Kelly? The whole book is a slow reveal of an event that occurred years before and yet the current case of Brandon. And I don't know how you keep track of that. I don't know how you stay true to it. It is such a taut, compelling narrative. It moves. This book just moves along like a current. And I don't know how you do that. Well, definitely, you know, it does help to handwrite it first. And then I have, so I had a separate notebook for each of the three parts, uh, characters or the, and the omniscient narrator. I would say, oddly, the omniscient narrative, they drive it a lot in that I do have a lot of clues in those about the past. I'm really big into internal and external reveals from screenwriting and wanting the reader to be able to put it together more like a puzzle than being told a story. Mm -hmm. Um, I think now people like something where they're a little more active and they're piecing it together and they're trying to figure it out. So I really try to think about that, leaving the crumbs along. And then I know my husband, when he was reading it, he's always so good about reading my stuff or having me read it aloud. He said really in like the last 30%, it was just like a match, an accelerant in the last third. So I try to do that as well and just gradual have the slow boil so that you don't know it even happened. At the, and at the end, the explosion, and you're like, wow, I, I didn't see that coming. But then you realize, oh, yeah, I did. Yeah, you, know? you give us enough breadcrumbs, but not not that many. It, it was enough. That, yeah, your timing was perfect. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. But that definitely takes like, that's certainly done more, I think, in re-editing it when you type it in, having someone else read it. Um, I had some great beta readers too, because sometimes as well, a downfall of sort of doing the character listening and getting so entrenched with characters is you think all these things about them are important. And you know them. They're almost like your little baby or something. And not everyone wants to see all the baby pictures. <laughs> they might just want to see the one of the birthdays, that one th- special thing, you know. So it is harder to weed it out. But I go by that, that I'd rather have to cut. I try to write it all, not worry about the word count. 
I'll see that sometimes where people are like, I did this many words today. I just don't do that. I get it all out as fast as I can. And I usually have to cut a lot. My next one, it's really kicking me that I <laughs> have to do that. It's like 400 and some pages. I have to whittle down, but I was very proud in a way that temperatures, I did have an ending like amount I did not want to go over and I didn't. So that I was proud of myself for that. <laughs> I mean, listen, I, <laughs> you, you just had me at my next one. So now I have to, I have to read focus to get back to my questions before I get to the next one, which I'm <laughs> thrilled to hear about. You write these male character voices. They are so authentic to me. They are real. I can see them. You write everything you write is visual. How is it to get into these these male characters, I, it's just stunning what you've done with them. Uh, I think you have to be very careful now with whose who's story do I have the right to tell? So that was difficult to decide because I wasn't sure that was my right to tell. However, growing up as a female in the South, I felt that I did have a little right to tell it in a way because these were an amalgam, a, a mixture of men I had been around my whole life. I always hung out a lot more with guys. I always had a couple close female friends, but hung out mostly with guys, played sports, that type of thing. So I was very immersed in both types of people. I knew some hoves, I knew some cobs and also dealing with how much are you complicit if you know a hoag. Or an and Olsen, is, or even a Bobby yes. Olson, right? Yeah. Yes, or Bobby Olson. Grew up with some Bobby Olsons. And that's always disturbed me is where is that line and where are you complicit because you don't say anything. But yet, like, I don't know if you've ever read, I'm a big uh, Cormac McCarthy fan, and one of my favorites of his is Child of God. So this was kind of my Child of God in a way, because it is very much about that in the similar vein of Cormac's book, it's very much about the evil we allow to just trickle and live among us. And yet we're sort of forced to, because it hasn't just totally gone over the edge and been extreme evil, but yet it is progressive and it's going to at some point. Mm -hmm. And so people usually will add up. We have to go on with our lives to be human and live and do what we have to do, we have to be like the horse with blinders and we have to have a level of complicitness or, or you'd never leave your house. And then on the flip side, you give us that chapter from Bobby Olson's mother. And that is probably, if that could be a short story, like that's something I could see in The New Yorker. I don't know. There's just something about that chapter. And I love the placement of that chapter in the book. Like I thought, oh, would this be okay somewhere else? But the first time we really, we get from his mom's perspective. I love that you did that. Well, and you think about the level of complicitness that she had. And I knew people like that all the time. Their little boy, you know. So, yeah, I think even piggybacking on the other thing you asked, I felt because I was really painting the pictures of people I had been around. I did have a right. I've been directly affected by people like that. Mm -hmm. So I did have a right to tell their story. And it's the only story that I thought at the end, I did not do the women in the book enough justice, but 
I thought that wouldn't have been true to the South for me, the South that I knew. Mm -hmm. It would have been truer to the progressive me who wishes the South was not that way. Mm -hmm. But I felt like the women for me very much played the roles that the South has for them and showed those roles. And especially in the section you're talking about with Bobby Olson's mother, Miss Olson, again, that's a role she sort of comes into the same as all the other characters of ignoring and pushing down her feelings about him because that's her son and yet ignoring her gut. And I'm always taken with that. I think women overall, especially in our culture, you know, you hear those things that sound so good about, oh, go with your gut, listen to your gut. Really, women don't get that luxury very often. Mm-hmm. We have multiple times a day that we're not allowed to go with our gut. And pretty soon, you don't know what that even feels like. And it feels wrong to do that because especially very much in the South, women had certain roles that they filled and very much saw many more Mrs. Olsons where their children were their little gods and the children, especially boys, could do no wrong. <laughs> and further to that, boys will be boys kind of attitude, right? Yes. Yes. So I knew I knew a lot of Miss Olsons for sure. And I think they still persist, especially in the wealthier groups very much where there's sort of that hierarchical and patriarchal system of boys do this, girls do this. And, you know, if boys do something, we have to cover it up. There was even not on Netflix not long ago that Murdaugh, I think it was, and that was from South Carolina. Huge representation of that. And as we're talking about the South and the way things are, you also lend even more authenticity to the story because you use dialect. Tell me about writing that. Was that hard to do? Did you ever consider not using dialect? Well, I think my editor and I had some back and forth about that, especially my editors in New York. And I think I was able to compromise on, while I understood his point, I was able to compromise just doing it in the dialogue. Mm -hmm. But it was very hard for me because I write it in dialect. So it's harder for me to only make it in the dialogue. Now, Mitchum often says this word and cuts off this part of it. Hogue says this word cuts off this part of it. So when you're rereading, you have to make sure that's consistent. So that's tricky, but I just don't think there's any other way to do it justice. Mm -hmm. My second book, Wage, was all in dialect, and I would never do that again. I think that's really hard, and I had that feedback from some readers, Mm -hmm. but it was in a small southern town. So now I'm able to sort of run through what I hear through the translator and be like, okay, we'll do that just in the dialogue. Which is just interesting. It works. And that's what I love about temperatures. It's completely authentic. So I am really excited to read all of the rest of your work since I am late to the Suzanne Crane Miller party, but I promise I will catch up. I will provide a link for all of the listeners to your collection as well. And you mentioned it before and my mouth dropped. You're working on something new. Anything you can share about that, where you are in the process? Well, now the next one coming out, hopefully by next year is with Inked and Gray, and it is a serial killer one. Very different than temperatures, but I've had very good feedback. Then I always have one I'm either editing than one I'm working on. The current one I'm working on is very much about the drug addiction issues in the U.S. Being someone who's disabled with an autoimmune dystrophy, I've had to make a lot of choices about whether or not to be on drugs and what kind of drugs. Mm -hmm. 
So it deals a lot with the fact that in America, you will have to make that choice at some point because that's our school of medicine, right? So it's about a teacher and one of her former students who becomes a dealer and it's called icing. So I'm working on that one. I'm about a third of the way through. And so always, yeah, kind of mining out which taboo topic is best to cover in the moment. If you haven't already guessed, I'll be here for all of those things. <laughs> well, thank you. I so appreciate that. You will get the first one of each of those. <laughs> what is it? Inked in? Yeah, the publisher is called Inked and Gray. They're very cool. They do a lot of blogging about mental health. They have fantasy. They have a lot of different genres. They're really, I like them a lot. They're an indie publisher, but I, I really enjoy them and they've been good to work with. And they really understand and appreciate my work. They're really low-key and very appreciative of the fact that I can't do events like regular authors because right. being an autoimmune, so I have to do online stuff and connect through my blog or Instagram or Twitter. That's very different too. And that's not fun for any editor. I notice you ask people about their next event. It's like, yeah, I'll be walking my dog again. My next event. And you know but... what? I'm here for that too. So once we <laughs> tell people, we're going to tell listeners where they can find you on social media so they can yeah. follow along with you. Well, I appreciate that because yeah, that's been uh, an interesting time to have some of my first publications coming out when I can't actually be around other people really. So my life, I tell people, is kind of like that old Sigourney Weaver movie, Copycat, except there's no menacing Harry Connick Jr., which is nice. (laughs) Where can they follow along with you on social media? With Tattooed Daughter at WordPress.com, and you'll put that. And then on Wednesdays, I am on Instagram and Twitter because they are spelled a little different because there were people that took Tattooed Daughter before. How dare they? How dare they? Come on. Come on. Okay, so I will have all of that up on the podcast page for this episode. I am already following along. Anything you can share with listeners about the things that you've been reading, that you've enjoyed, book recommendations? Well, I'm actually, I'm a huge Polinic fan. And so I'm reading one that kind of went under the radar because of the pandemic of the invention of sound, even though he keeps churning them out. He's got another new one, but I'm reading the invention of sound. I would say it's sort of an eight millimeter-ish type. I like it already. You know, I like him a lot. And then... Heather Levy is never disappointing, as I said in the beginning. Her for you is getting ready to come out. And then I've recently discovered uh, Chelsea Biker, I think, B-I-E-K-E-R, that her name is, out of Portland. She has two different books. I read Heartbroke, that was her short story collection. Those are some recent ones that have really just kept me turning the pages and very riveting. And you were also kind enough to give me in an email some other recommendations that you have. So I will post those as well. Oh my gosh, Suzanne Crane Miller. Thank you so much for joining us here on Top Shelf. I am so appreciative and I really, if I haven't frightened you off, I really hope you will come back for whatever comes next for you. Oh, yes. I so appreciate it. I really appreciate your support and encouragement. It means a lot because you put these things out. You don't know, you know, if people like them or not. So it's great to hear. It's been such an honor. Temperatures by today's guest, Suzanne Crane Miller is on shelves right now. Please grab a copy at your local library library, your local independent bookstore, or please use the link that I will provide on the podcast page for this episode. Temperatures is published by Winding Road Stories. Listeners, the both of us appreciate all of you. Remember to find Top Shelf at Merrick Library wherever you find most podcasts. For the latest and the greatest at the Merrick Library, check out our website at merricklibrary.org. Thanks to Merrick Library Director Dan Chesmier, Assistant Director Diane Bondi, and the Merrick Library Board of Directors for getting us off the ground and on 
to the airwaves. Until the next time, remember to keep us on your top shelf. 